a bad liar. So like, I'm just like, I'm really good at telling the truth. Brandy Colbert is always right, in her books at least. Her entire life, she has been enamored of the craft of writing and storytelling. But as she got older, her passions grew to include hours and hours of research, for real. I've always just sort of loved research, going down rabbit holes, you know, and just two hours later you come up and you're like, oh my God, I know everything there is to know about like ant eaters or whatever. Brandy is an author known for both her fiction and nonfiction works. Her acclaimed novels include Little and Lion, which won the Stonewall Book Award, The Only Black Girls in Town, and Point. Meanwhile, her nonfiction book about the Tulsa Race Massacre, Blackbirds in the Sky, won the Boston Globe Horn Book Award. In this episode, she tells us where she developed and honed her research skills, how she brings characters to life, and why a character by any other name is just not the same character. We'll also hear how she was inspired by the Nobel Prize winning words of Toni Morrison and the not quite Nobel Prize winning drama of Dawson's Creek. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators about ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. All right. Onto the show. So maybe we could start off with your sort of growing up life and what life was like for young Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's kind of weird when I think about growing up. So I grew up in the Missouri Ozarks in Springfield, Missouri, pretty sheltered suburban area. For me, it was difficult because it was predominantly white and when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, maybe 3% Black, I think, were the statistics of my area. So I had a really great, stable childhood, like wonderful parents, supportive. And then there was always this feeling of not really belonging where I was. And the only place I could really go to see people who looked like me, you know, regularly was church. So we went to church every weekend. And I don't consider myself a religious person, but to me, that was just really impactful because of the sense of community that it gave me as a kid. What was your uh, school life like, your day-to-day? Yeah, I was a good student. I had no choice. Uh, My parents were very much like, you're just going to bring home A's. I really liked school. I was a really involved kid. In fifth grade, I started playing the clarinet. (laughs) I played that through eighth grade. You were in the band. Yeah, I was in the band. I know. Yeah, just anything I could sort of get involved with. I grew up dancing, so that was separate from school, but that was a big part of my life as a kid. You were a tap took, dancer, is that what I remember? I was, yes, okay. yeah, I'm glad that's out there. Yeah. I was I was a tapper, yeah, so that was my main thing. I never really took ballet as a kid. I would take some jazz lessons for a few years, but like tap is it, and I still love it so much, and sometimes I go to classes, so it's like that thing that never really went away. Were you were into reading? Were you always a reader growing up? Oh, yeah. Like, I cannot remember, like, a time that books were not a huge part of my life. So my older brother is six years older than me, so I inherited a lot of his books. I remember getting his little golden books and all of that, his picture books and things. And then we would always go to the library every Saturday, and I remember 
librarians being like, are you going to read all those? Like kind of teasing me. And I would get offended. I'd be like, of course I'm going to read these, you know, <laughs> just like a little What's kid. the limit? I'm <laughs> taking it. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. It would be like, how many can I take out this week? So always like a big part of my life. My parents are both readers, but I would say my mom especially is a really big reader. So she was always the one who sort of pushed that with us and bookstores as well. I would earn my little allowance and then be allowed to go spend it on, I guess, toys were on the table too, but I was really more interested in the books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'd be like, I'm going to go buy like, you know, my Babysitter's Club books or whatever. Oh my God. I love the Babysitter's <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I remember like when Christie's Great Idea came out and I was just like, what is this little, and they hooked me for about the first 30 books, like five <laughs> super specials. You remember it? <laughs> yep. I do. <laughs> So do you remember reading any books with Black characters as a kid? Or do you remember like the first one that made it to your hands? Oh, goodness. This sounds so terrible, but I really don't remember reading any. I mean, I'm sure I did read some. I would assume they were probably historical fiction, probably dealing with enslavement or the civil rights movement, which, you know, I'm very interested in that now. But I really, really wanted books with just kind of carefree kids just getting to live their lives. And I know some of those books were out there, but I think back on that now and I'm like, well, if they were there, I don't think they were in the library because I was the kid who would just go and look at the shelves every week and look for anything new or look for a book I missed by a favorite author. And so I don't remember anything jumping out to me, but I also wonder maybe why the librarians weren't suggesting some of those books or did they not have them? You know, now I know sort of how curation and collection works, right. all that stuff. So a little inside baseball, yeah. but yeah, I'm just on a surface level. I'm really just curious why those weren't available, the few that were out there, why they weren't available to me as a kid. So as you came into your like middle school years, there's just such a desire to fit in in middle school and high school and everything. How was that for you in your town and your home? In junior high, there were these two Black girls that I made friends with right away and really grew close to them. And it felt kind of like coming home. It just felt like a sense of relief, like there was a shorthand with them where I didn't have to explain myself or they knew about my hair because they did their hair the same way and that kind of thing. Um, One of them was my friend Keisha, and we just really got along because it's not that there weren't any other Black kids in my hometown. It's that they typically went to different schools and maybe lived on a different side of town and, you know, just didn't have very much interaction. And then I felt self-conscious sometimes being around them because I wasn't around very many Black people my age. And so there was maybe that struggle of, you feel too Black, like you feel too white. But with Keisha, I never felt like that, even though she had grown up with a lot more Black people than I had. And then she and her mother moved away after our seventh grade year And then she and her mother ended up dying in a car accident. It was just tough, you know, even though she wasn't going to be in eighth grade with me, just knowing that, I don't know, this person that I had connected with so deeply that she was gone. It was tough. It was a long time ago, but it still impacts me. And I just, you know, she meant a lot to me and just made me feel, I guess, a lot more confident in who I was at such a young age that in a way nobody else was really able to do and just to not really get to like kind of contextualize that at the time and and thank her for that, you know, was a little tough. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm also like really, (laughs) they're both like, need a minute. (laughs) I didn't mean to do Um, this to us. My apologies. (laughs) No, I appreciate you sharing. 
what a thing to go through in like seventh or eighth grade. I mean, those years are just impossible, you know, they're impossible as a mom of an eighth grader right now. I mean, they're just, it's so hard. Does she ever show up for you like in some of your characters or like, do you feel like you see her in some of your characters? Not yet. I've kind of tried, I'm kind of toying with something, maybe dealing with that. Sometimes those things that are so close to you, I kind of can't get a grasp on, sort of similar to my parents' divorce, which was right around that same time. I've tried to write about it and I just, you know, that was like 30 years ago. I just can't, I can't do it yet. Did you write a lot? Like I gather you probably read for some solace, but did you write a lot growing up? Like were you a journaler or were you writing creatively? I was writing creatively. Yeah. Um, My dad always says, you know, and people will talk to him about my new books or he's like, she has a new book out. And he'll be like, I just remember her sitting on her bed with her notebooks and pen and just writing. And that was it. Like I, like I always loved to draw. So I wasn't like the best illustrator, but I always, (laughs) always enjoyed it. I don't know. I think the more I read, like when I mentioned reading books on my own for the first time, sort of like the Ramona books and those kinds of things, I I think more interested in the craft of storytelling. And so I would draw these little characters and then they would kind of have speech bubbles coming out of their mouths. So they would start like having conversations and then I would start narrating at the bottom of the page kind of what was going on. And then the pictures were fewer and fewer. And then finally it was just writing. So I would ask my parents to buy me these spiral, you know, notebooks, because back in those days, didn't have <laughs> computers. Maybe, maybe like, some Lisa Frank. Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. Oh my gosh. The unicorn flying yeah. over like an insane rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was really into writing. Um, I always say like, I remember starting writing around like age seven. It's funny when I look back at those, because I do have those still packed away with me. And they were like kind of lots of ripoffs of what I was watching at the time. Cause I always like, I'm such a TV person. Like as a kid, I used to write in front of the TV. Oh yeah. So yeah. Right. So convenient plot lines right there <laughs> at my disposal. And the funny thing I always look back and am kind of astounded by is that all the characters were white. I did not write about black characters at all. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like even in their description, in like the physical descriptions of them in the... Oh no. Lots of blonde hair, blue eyes, red hair, no black people at all. Fascinating. I mean, when you think about what you were consuming and where you lived, I wonder, did your parents ever read your stuff? Did they ever comment on it? They never, as far as I remember, never commented on it. But I do wonder sometimes if their actions were sort of subtly influenced by kind of noticing that and and knowing the sort of environment that they had essentially dropped us in. Like what kind of actions? Well, I feel like our household itself was super Black, culturally Black. Like I always had Black dolls, even though like it was extremely hard to find them, you know, in the yeah, No 80s. Amazon. Yeah. No they Amazon. Were, no like... You, you went know, to just, great lengths to get a Black doll in the 80s, that's for absolutely. sure. Yeah. I really don't know how they did it. In so, the Ozarks. As, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's like even then if they were black dolls, like they weren't necessarily at the local department store or toy store. And we always had black magazines around. And even like my mom is a quilter. Oh, cool. Sort of a longtime tradition in her family that I'm unfortunately not carrying on. Just disaster with a needle and thread. (laughs) You know, when she would make like a sunbonnet Sioux quilt, which I still have that here, it would have brown hands, you know? So it was like very aware of the images that were being presented in our home. And I do think it was intentional because they knew as soon as we left the house, 
we weren't going to feel that sense of inclusion. So good. Great parenting, it sounds like, actually. All right, so you grew up writing. You're always into it, it sounds like. And then college comes around and you end up going a more practical route. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I applied to a few schools around us. It's kind of sad looking back. I think it was kind of a regional thing. I've heard this from other people and I don't know how you feel about growing up in the Midwest, but I feel like our options weren't really presented to us very clearly. It was just like, you're going to go to like a state school or like, you know, a big school, but it's going to be in the Midwest. I didn't even know what liberal arts colleges were, which is where I should have gone. Um, (laughs) I would have totally thrived at a liberal arts college, but instead I went to um, a state school um, in my hometown. It was called Southwest Missouri State. I applied to Mizzou and KU and I got into both of those, but my parents were like, we'll pay for your school if you stay here and go to school here and just like live at home for a couple of years. And so, yeah, I went there and I studied journalism and English literature as a minor. So it wasn't wasn't all bad. You were thinking of writing as like a technical thing that you could do with another career, but not, you weren't thinking at that time, like I want to be, or were you thinking I maybe want to be like a novelist? I want to write stories. Or were you thinking, I'm a good writer. Journalism seems like a natural thing you can do. It was kind of both. Like I still at the back of my mind wanted to be a published author. Like I wanted to be since I understood that I could write stories on my own. But I took some journalism classes in high school. I really kind of fell in love with it. I loved the reporting of it. I loved that I was able to make these stories sort of out of nothing, but it was all factual. And honestly, I didn't know, again, it's like the liberal arts colleges, like I didn't know you could study creative writing like in school. And I don't think my parents would have been down to pay for a creative writing degree. So it was like a kind of happy medium of like, I get to write but it is more of a practical sort of endeavor and my parents are going to like support this, so. It's important, therefore, to know who the real enemy is and to know the function, the very serious function of racism, which is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language, and so you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says that you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says that you have no kingdoms, and so you dredge that up. None of that is necessary. That's a passage from Toni Morrison's 1975 speech, A Humanist View, which she gave at Portland State University. Brandy's first introduction to Toni Morrison was in college. I took these really great literature classes with a female professor. And I don't know, I just loved the way she taught. I loved her book lists. And she introduced me to so many authors. And that's when I started reading Black authors, which is like kind of embarrassing to say, but just the truth. I don't think you're alone. I know you're not. Zeta, I remember talking to Zeta Elliott. I remember she had definitely had that experience. She's like, where were these people in my like high school? Exactly. I just, and it opened a whole new world to me. And so that's when I first read Toni Morrison and I read Sula. It was the first thing I read by her. And I was just like, wait, you can write about black women like this? And like, they don't have to be perfect and they can kind of be shitty, you know? Yeah, like was- yeah. yeah. <laughs> Toni Morrison's writing helped Brandy recognize the value of her own perspective as a black woman and a creator. But just as that 1975 speech predicted, defending her writing's right to exist has encroached on Brandy's creative time, energy, and identity. 
I actually think it's something that sort of impacted me more kind of in the years since I've read it. And I would specifically say that for me, it relates to like the recent book bannings. But I would also say maybe like publishing's most recent diversity push, which would have been closer to around the time when I first read this. It's horrible. We all know what's going on and we know the specific books that are being targeted and why. And now I find that it often for panels or talks, people kind of only want to talk to you about book banning if you're an author whose books are being targeted. And, you know, mine are primarily just for Black characters, I guess, um, sexual content. You know, one of them, they don't like that one of the characters has two dads. I'm happy to engage with it to a certain degree. But after a while, I've had to just say, you know what, I'm not participating in panels on specifically about book banning anymore. I do think it's a distraction. I want to talk about my art. I want to talk about the craft of writing. I don't want to ignore what's going on out there. But I've even had people ask, well, does this make you want to write different things. And I'm like, no, (laughs) knowing that I could write a book that could get banned doesn't make me want to write different things. To me, that's giving in to like the very notion of why they're banning books. And I'm really glad that there are a lot of authors who do want to speak out about things that I don't necessarily want to. I think we all have different roles that we play in the industry and in our own careers. But I do find that it seems some authors now sort of become like the mouthpiece for book banning when I'm like, gosh, I know you're an incredible writer. Like, I know you probably want to be working on your books. And it's just falling, obviously, like disproportionately on people of color, LGBTQ, anybody who is personhood is being banned, so to speak, so that everybody else gets to talk about their craft. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So now I'd like to talk about what led you from this very practical writing career path that you took to your work as an author today, right? So why don't you start by telling us about your first job out of college and how you got to California? Yeah, I worked for Lowe's, the hardware chain. I started when I was 16 and I ended up working there all the way through the rest of high school, all the way through college. You know, I was going to quit, but I wanted to move to LA and I was like, well, maybe I can get there through like a transfer. So they had just opened like a brand new Lowe's store out here in Burbank. And my store manager called in a favor and got me like transferred there. So I moved out here and had that job for a year. And then I was also interning. I would go in and work from I think 6.30 in the morning, which is just like wild to me now, to like 3.30 or 2.30 something like that in the afternoon. And then I would go and intern at like an alt weekly. I know there's not very many left, but there was one, it was called entertainment today. <laughs> just like, okay. But I would go intern there. They let me write reviews and they just really, again, gave me like a lot of freedom there. It's just kind of this kid that cold called them and was like, can I come intern for you? <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So I did that for about a year and a few months. And then I got my first magazine job, which was at Muscle and Fitness Hers. Yes. For women. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm always amazed by like what writing, I've I've heard people tell me they worked for like an architectural digest and they knew like nothing about architecture or like, you know, it's like you just go into this thing. You're like, I don't know anything. I don't know. Were you like really into fitness? (laughs) I mean, no, no more than the average person. No, it was a whole new world to me. I remember my brother had subscribed to Muscle and Fitness, just like the main one growing up. So I remembered the brand, Cool, but like getting there, yeah, and seeing like Muscle and fitness isn't even like the hardcore when there's one like 
called Flex, where it's just like <laughs> okay. those just truly like bodybuilders at the top of their game. A little tough to look at the photos sometimes. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a common piece of advice for aspiring writers to not get a job where you have to write. If you spend all day writing for things as a career, then you won't have anything left in the tank for writing for yourself. Brandy, however, was not going to let a day job derail the author dream. Despite spending her days writing about things like women's muscles, she still found the passion within herself to work on stories of her own. I have a bunch of, and I'm sure they're still in my like Rubbermaid tote full of notebooks that I have, but I had a bunch of stuff that I would start and I wouldn't finish it. Those were adult novels. That's I kind of. So you were writing for adults mostly first. I was. That was your starting point. Yeah, in my early twenties, which was so funny to look back at, because now I'm like, even just looking at pictures, I'm like you were a baby, like you were <laughs> an infant. You had no idea like how the world worked yeah. or anything like that. But I, of course, thought you know I could write this novel about people even older than me. So I had a, a story, you know, about relationships, basically, not really about anything else, and. I went to take this writing course because I was like, okay, you've got to be able to show your writing to people. Like if you really want to go on this publishing journey, that's kind of the whole point. So I took a six week writing course, like from a local writing instructor. And that was really helpful in like just being able to share my work and getting feedback, which was tough. Like I remember getting a note from someone that was like, this is lazy writing. Like you're a better writer than this. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, but like, I still remember that. It's like I kind of needed that tough feedback from someone who didn't know me. So then that kind of, I think, opened a door to like me being like, okay, I can show my writing to people. I'm getting like good feedback. I can take it and implement it into the work. And then I kind of started looking up agents and looking to query, but I had a feeling like the book wasn't quite where it needed to be. And I don't remember like what the first YA book was that I read as an adult, but I somehow rediscovered YA. It was like, hmm, wait a minute, these books are fun, you know, and they're kind of doing things that I'm interested in doing in my writing, but they're for teens. Is that okay? You know, and I was still watching a lot of like Dawson's Creek and stuff. Like I was like not a teenager anymore, but exactly like still (laughs) watching the teen shows. And so that's when I decided to write YA. And so I took the same story that I had been working on, which was truly about nothing but relationships and just aged it down. And that was the first book that I ended up querying like a hundred agents with. (laughs) And? (laughs) I mean, like a hundred rejections. Yeah. (laughs) Some people say just being able to be a writer is half skill and half willingness to deal with rejection. I 100% agree with that. I kind of take also rejection as like a challenge. So (laughs) it's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to come back with something better. So I just kept writing and I wrote three more books. And then the fourth book that I wrote for publication and ended up querying, I almost quit because I had gotten pretty far in like revise and resubmit with an agent. And then she ended up being like, you know, I just don't think there's anything I can actually do for you. And I was just like devastated. Yeah. Cause I was like, this is the best thing. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I knew I was a better writer and I knew it was the best thing I'd ever written. And I was just like, she's a great agent. She knows what she's talking about. She publishes all the types of books that I want to be publishing. So I almost quit. I sent out like maybe five more queries and I think I got like four more rejections. And then one agent was like, I would like to read this. And she read it and she asked for a revise and resubmit. And then 
I got laid off on a Friday. That Monday, um, that agent called and offered me representation. And so wow, that ended up being my first book. And we sold it a month later, maybe when I was like driving on my way, moving back to LA. That's so, <laughs> so cool. Yeah. That first novel was Point, a dramatic and emotional story about a young ballerina. While Brandy's own dance background was deeply rooted in tap, she took on the challenge to authentically portray the intricate universe of ballet. This would mark the beginning of what has become a hallmark of Brandy's work over the years, highly researched and accurate depictions of very specific experiences. Her commitment to thorough research proves that, at least for Brandy, the often repeated adage, write what you know, is more of a suggestion. I've always sort of loved research, kind of going down rabbit holes, you know, and just two hours later you come up and you're like, oh my God, I know everything there is to know about like anteaters or whatever. Is that like journalism background, I guess? Right. I think it must be. Yeah. And then when I worked at that kind of terrible job in Chicago, I don't know what was going on there, but I was a business writer. And so I would have to interview all these business owners and they were just all kinds of truly from like people who made widgets to like, you know, just whatever. And so I learned a lot about a lot of different types of businesses. I feel like that was always interesting. Like I was always pivoting, like able to sort of learn a little bit about a lot of stuff. How do you sort of build these various characters? What is your way that you're thinking of them? Are you, do you come up with their name? What is the order of name any, any of these Yeah. Well, sometimes I'll like think, oh, I've got this character, it's working. And then I'll be like, no, that's not their name. And I have to go back and I mean, I'll just spend like days working out names. Yeah. Names are really, really big to me. I love them. I think about them. Like I know some people don't, they'll just be like, that's Alice or whatever. And I'm like, fine, perfectly great name, but I just really like engaging with names and I can't start writing the character until the name feels right to me. And there's no like set process and why it feels right to me. It just does. So do you cast your books before you write your books or do you have like a general idea of I'm going to write this book about XYZ or do you just say this is my, I don't know, how does that happen? And then do you, what's your like practice? Yeah, I usually will, it kind of comes about like, yeah, I kind of want to write about this thing. And, you know, I typically write female, woman, girl characters. So I know it's going to be that And then once I get the name, I guess it's like sort of a personality or I I start kind of thinking, what was their background? You know, how did they grow up? What are they interested in? What do they do? Like you said, because I'm so interested in people having passions or all of that. So, and then all of that kind of informs it. I don't outline. I probably should, unless it's nonfiction. I do outline nonfiction. Oh my God. With that book, I bought like must be like 20 copies of Blackbirds in the Sky. I mean, that that book is oh just- Oh my gosh, thank you. Insanely well-written. I, I can't even- Thank you so much. Yeah, oh, it's gorgeous. I've heard from a lot of adults that are like, I learned so much. Um, which, I learned so much. I learned about you. your hometown about the, the very yeah. beginning, I think. Like the way you root everything there in like, this is how we got here, the Trail of Tears. I mean, just like the build of that book is incredible. Oh, thank you. I'm very proud of it. So that means a lot. But yeah, I had to outline that or it would have been (laughs) harder than it already was. (laughs) (laughs) But for fiction, yeah, I kind of feel like I lose, truly like lose the plot if I outline or sort of write about what I'm going to write about before I actually just do it. But I would probably save a little more time because, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, here's a new character. Well, what's their role? Okay, now they need a name, you know? And so then you kind of are back to square one, but it just has always worked out that way. So 
So something I find really effective in your work is the specificity. And there's this quote that I quote often, uh, in the particular lies the universal. And I think that really speaks to your writing. And even when you're writing about this particular moment in history or place, you just get very deep into the individuals within the book, so deep that really anyone or everyone can connect with it in some way. And um, in particular, I was blown away by the way that you wrote about the Tulsa race massacre with blackbirds because it's, it is nonfiction, but it reads like fiction because these actual people become characters in a very tragic story. And then conversely, your fiction has a ton, like a depth of history to it. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I dedicated my book, The Voting Booth, uh, which is fiction, but to Fannie Lou Hamer, who is, you know, just this incredible activist. But the way I even came across her was like, I heard that quote, um, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. And I was like, who said that? Like, that's incredible. <laughs> that's, and then That is somebody I believe in. <laughs> like, exactly. I want to know more about them. And then to not have known anything about her and then to have all this like research to be able to do into her life. And so, yeah, I just think you can get pulled in so many different ways, but right for her, yeah, her personality, she had all these amazing like sayings and speeches and things. And yeah, she was kind of a character to me first before I learned about everything she actually did, you know? Yeah. You're sort of like the Ida B. Wells. Is that you? Oh, that's like, <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I love Ida B. Yeah. I, I got to put a whole uh, sidebar in. Uh, Blackbirds in the Sky about Ida B. Wells. I just, yeah, I love her. But I think for me, writing Blackbirds was, it was really impactful because I was, I'm a big truth teller. I'm a bad liar. So I'm just like, I'm really good at telling the truth. And I wanted to do that with kids in a way that provided context because essentially Blackbirds in the Sky is a history book, which is just, like I said, I think in the foreword, I never thought I would write a history book. But I I knew there was a way to make it interesting. And that wasn't like really the way I was taught history in school. I was just really taught a lot of dates, right? And names. Memorization. Memorize this, exactly, with no context given to anything. Again, like I said in the foreword of the book, like the Trail of Tears went through my hometown and we never talked about it in any accessible way, which is truly crazy. So I really like that nonfiction tells the truth to kids in maybe a more palatable, more accessible way um, than adult books would do, but it's still the truth. Brandy's newest release is a young adult novel called The Blackwoods, which weaves together multiple narratives to tell the story of Blossom Blackwood, a groundbreaking Hollywood star and the matriarch of what becomes a family dynasty. That novel, too, has been praised for its accuracy. And hot tip, I listened to this one as an audiobook, and it was really fabulous. Yeah, no, it's been interesting. I've spoken to some people who work in Hollywood and they've been like, oh my God, how did you get this so right? And I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, (laughs) it's not like I had like a Hollywood sensitivity read on it or anything. So that was really helpful because, you know, I just took so much of that from working at Backstage for almost a Ah, decade. And so it's just, I was the copy editor. So I read literally everything that went in the magazine several times and really appreciated the actor interviews because there were so many similarities like from a creative standpoint to writing. And so if I were kind of feeling down in the dumps about things, I would read this article and it's like, well, this person struggled, you know, like it's not always going to be easy. So that's been really nice to hear about like the technical aspects of it have been correct. How are your uh, school visits going? Like, do you have any like memorable stories 
uh, from any of your books that you can speak to? Yeah, I think they're always like surprising to me because I am always very nervous. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, and I, Why? Yeah, I feel like, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, like I guess you're going to talk like, to high Why? schoolers. High schoolers are like, you know, they can be a little scary most of the part of time. Totally. <laughs> yeah, where I'm just like, you always look back and there's always some kid with their head down in yeah. the back row and you're just like, oh, okay, well. <laughs> that is harder. Like, you know what I mean? Like picture, you're going to speak to elementary. Like, don't be scared. They're so sweet. They're still pleasing, you know, of people. No, high school, they're over everything. I could see it. Yeah, they're kind of over it. But even if like I'll notice kind of like the kids didn't seem engaged, but then afterwards, there's always like those kids who will come up to you and just hang out waiting until everybody leaves to like ask you a question or tell you something that you said that impacted them. And that really means a lot to me. Like often it'll be like some of the only black kids in the school or in the class or whatever. Even if they don't say like that impacted me, like they might ask me a question, like, how did you deal with this? And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like they think I'm an expert, you know, like (laughs) they're asking me for advice. I don't know what's going on still, but like, just that they like saw some part of them, I guess, that related to me means so much because I didn't have that growing up in terms of like, didn't see authors doing what I do. And then even meeting with, you know, middle schoolers because of the only black girls in town, um, typically, And they are funny because they're so engaged and they're asking a lot of questions. And I'm just so impressed by how with it they are and how these like intelligent, well-crafted questions. Can you think of any that took you off guard? Any of those questions that, or I don't know, not took you off guard to some of yours that stand out to you? I remember I was giving a presentation. This was over Zoom. So this was like in the thick of the pandemic. I don't remember exactly what he asked. And it was a pretty, like it was an LA school and he was a younger white kid. And he asked just like this super insightful question about race and writing race. And I was just like, wow, somebody's doing something right here. You know, like it was just really thoughtful and thoughtful as to like kind of his own privilege. And he's like 11 or 12 or something. And I'm just like, wow, like what a kid, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I kind of look at that time too, though, as like their consciousness was like elevated. Mm -hmm. You hope that that keeps moving forward, you know, not snapping back. Yeah, I always think the kids are doing a much better job than adults. I was pretty taken aback. You know, I was working on Blackbirds in the Sky in 2020. When like, God, what a time to have been working on that book. That's so wild. wild to think yeah. about it. Yeah, I think it actually like was really helpful to me. It sort of, I don't know, like bolstered things in a way that maybe wouldn't have felt so like urgent. And so like, I don't know, I just felt very like even more passionate while I was writing it. But yeah, I feel like there were a lot of people who sort of, first realized like racism is a problem. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I felt like we went through this in 2014 and 2015. You know, it's just the collective forgetfulness is really upsetting to me. But I feel like, I'm hopeful that kids, they're sort of staying aware and they aren't forgetting, I hope. Yeah, I don't know. What is your desire when you do create, you have just an extreme diversity of characters in books. There's layers of intersectionality for many different characters. What is your hope or purpose in wanting to present that to the world and to kids who are reading your books? I guess I just want people to be, you know, more open-minded when they meet people I remember like my first therapist many years ago, this was when I was in Chicago and I was like, it's really weird. I was like, I lived on the North side and there were definitely like people of color and black people who lived over there, but like not a lot. 
And I remember like I would take the train and then like get off my stop and like walk to my house and I would just get weird looks, not like hostile looks, but just sort of like, huh, what are you doing here? It's just like, there are black people everywhere. We're allowed to be wherever we want to be. And it just really upset me. And I remember talking to my therapist at the time about that. And she was like, I don't think you realize that people don't necessarily see you the way you see yourself. They may look at you and assume certain things. And so I don't like that assumption of just like someone's socioeconomic status or their personality, like whatever it may be. Their religion. Their religion. Exactly. Right. And I remember when I was writing Little and Lion, maybe even, I don't know if it was like seen, maybe reviews or whatever after it was out, but people were like, you know, a a black Jewish bisexual character. Like, what is that about? You know? And I was just like, I'm only black. I'm not Jewish or don't identify as queer. But like, I remember talking to one of my cousins and she was like, well, my cousin on the other side is like a black Jewish lesbian. She exists like that. And I didn't even know that. So it's just like, right. Like not trying to write anything that feels fantastical, but just saying like, yeah, these are intersections that exist. These are real people. And these are people who have to deal with a whole myriad of things that, you know, a lot of us don't have to. Brandy's mix of fact, history, and enticingly deep characters has been a defining feature of her work. For her reading challenge, Powerful Nonfiction, she invites readers to explore nonfiction books that skillfully weave these same elements together. This is a list of nonfiction books that will open minds, challenge assumptions, and highlight the power of historical truth for young readers and beyond. So yeah, I feel like maybe I wasn't paying as much attention to nonfiction as I should have been, you know, in this, in the young people's space before I wrote my own, but there's so many great books. Like I was just kind of like astounded, even in the year that Blackbirds in the Sky published, it was like, wow, this is like a really incredible year for nonfiction. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is once again, Cindy Philbeck, a teacher librarian at Wando High School in Charleston County, South Carolina. She told us a heartwarming story about a student's discovery of Sabah Tahir's All My Rage. A student came to the circulation desk and she was returning a book and she was very happy with All My Rage. And she thought it was fantastic. Sabah Tahir was just amazing. And she was energetic because she was Muslim. And she said, I didn't realize we had books here with Muslim characters. And I said, well, you know, if you like that one, there's going to be another book that I think you might like. It's called As Long as the Lemon Tree Grows. And she was like, you're kidding me. So she checked that book out as well. And she fell in love with Zulfa Kutur. And she also ended up starting a club for Muslim students within the next few months. So this was a junior and she made it all the way to her junior year before she realized we had books with Muslim characters. And she was just overwhelmed and excited. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with Brandy Colbert. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd-Bookie, and currently I'm reading Victory Stand by Derek Barnes, Tommy Smith, and Dawood Anyabile, and The Emotional Lives of Teenagers by Lisa Damore. If you enjoyed today's episode, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and really helps. 
To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and insights. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.